the massive creek fire high in California's Sierra Mountains was rapidly closing in on Lake Thomas Edison, where 46 campers were trapped. The fire had erupted so rapidly that it cut off any entry or escape routes to the lake in just a few minutes. The only hope of rescue was by helicopter, but two attempts had already failed. Joseph Rosamond, the pilot of the Chinook helicopter, said, The only word that I can use to describe it is apocalyptic. Every piece of vegetation was burning. Federal and state fire officials made their assessment very clear. It was dangerous to make a third rescue attempt under those conditions. However, Rosamond and his crew voted to try a third time. And this time, they rescued the first group of people. Multiple flights eventually pulled everyone out of the fire as it closed in around the lake. They would not have survived much longer in the inferno. They were literally plucked from the fire. You too, my friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have been plucked from the fires of hell by the grace of God. You could do nothing to save yourself. Neither could I. We were destined for hell, but for the grace of God who reached down to rescue us in our helplessness. Salvation is all of God and none of us. All believers are, are people plucked from the fire. That's who we are. Believers are people plucked from the fire. The message of this fourth vision of Zechariah is that Israel, God's people, will be plucked from the fire of God's wrath by the salvation of God's grace. Like Israel, we do not deserve it, and we cannot earn it. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Let's unpack the passage to understand the depth of God's grace and the glories of our salvation. The first principle of plucking is that believers are people plucked for purification. Zechariah 3 verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. We have before us in this vision a very interesting courtroom scene. Joshua, the high priest under Zerubbabel the king, 
stands before the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The phrase, standing before the Lord, is a common expression in the Old Testament to depict the high priest's ministry representing the people to the Lord. Satan is Joshua's accuser before the Lord in this heavenly courtroom. Joshua looks terrible. He is dressed in filthy clothing, picturing the sins of the people of Israel. But the Lord rebukes Satan because the Lord has chosen Israel, represented by Joshua in his official capacity as high priest. God then clothes Joshua, indicating that he has taken away his sin and put righteousness in its place. Here we see a beautiful picture of the spiritual cleansing of the nation by God. Now there are two lessons from this courtroom scene which apply to us as God's people today. First, the purification of believers is defending is defended by Christ in verses 1 through 2. Satan, the prosecuting attorney, accuses Joshua of sin. Joshua says nothing because he is unworthy of saying anything in his defense. The sinner has no defense before the judge. Satan is right. He's correct. We are all sinful people. A guilty verdict seems certain in this courtroom. There's no way out. But wait. Just wait. Enter the defense attorney. He is none other than Jesus Christ, Jehovah himself. Notice what Jehovah says to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. The angel of the Lord is called Jehovah or Yahweh in this verse. And friends, when Jesus Christ defends you, you are defended by the defense attorney who has never lost a case yet, and he charges no fees. His work is pro bono. Why? Why does Christ defend Israel? Because he has chosen Jerusalem. And the same is true for God's people today. Divine election, the choosing of God, is an act of God's grace, whereby he chooses the sinner for salvation. Because God has chosen us, he will defend us against all of Satan's accusations. Second, the purification of believers is performed by Christ in verses 3 through 5. Christ can defend the sinner and win because Christ has purified the sinner of his sin. Joshua is wearing filthy clothes representing his sin and the sins of his people. The verse makes us think of Isaiah 64 verse 6 where the prophet says that all our righteousnesses, all our best that we do are as filthy rags, literally menstrual cloths. The very best we can do is worthless to attain righteousness with God. It is Jesus Christ 
the angel of the Lord, that takes away his sin and clothes him in righteousness. It's not Joshua. Humans are utterly incapable of doing anything to save themselves. Only Christ can take away sin. And then Zechariah gets so excited that he inject, interjects himself into the vision itself and tells them to put a clean turban on Joshua's head. Wow, this is great news for the prophet Zechariah. This vision is wonderful, it's exciting. The nation of Israel will one day be cleansed of all sin and impurity. This, friends, is the gospel of the grace of God. You say, well, that's wonderful news for Israel, but what does that mean for me? Simply this, it is a beautiful picture of what God does for you, too. We, too, are people plucked from the fire for purification. Our lives are singed with the smoke of sin, so that even our best is nothing but filthy rags before God. We have the smell of hell on our lives. We too must have our sin taken away by the Savior. We too must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ defends us because he has already purified us by his death. Our trial in heaven is rigged by God. That, my friends, is grace. It is the grace of God which plucks us from the fire for purification. And there are far too many Christians going around beating themselves over the head with the guilt, forgetting that God cleanses us from sin. He takes it away. He clothes us in righteousness. We are forgiven by God. But we need to accept his forgiveness to experience life more abundant and free. Yet it's not enough to believe that God saves us. We must also understand the second principle of plucking. God saves us to use us. Following purification comes profit. Believers are people plucked for profit. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, we're reading in verses 6 and 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. If you will walk, and if you will obey, then you will govern. Jesus Christ plucks sinners from the fire for a purpose. And it's not so we can sit on our fat fannies and enjoy the good life. God expects a profit from his investment. Service follows salvation. We are saved to serve. In these two verses, there are two conditions for profit, and there are three results of profit. The conditions for profit in verse 7. The first condition is obedience. God says, walk in my ways. This refers to our personal lives, our personal attitudes, 
our lifestyles. We are to live as God directs us to live. We're not saved from the fire to live as we want. We are to live according to His values. If we want to be profitable to God, we must do it His way. The second condition is faithfulness. I like the way the King James Version translates this verse. Keep my charge. Keep my charge. The phrase refers to the faithful service of the priest. The priest was charged with a job to do, and he must do it. We, too, are priests of God in this world today. We must be faithful to fulfill his charge. Obedience and faithfulness are the conditions for profitability in God's work. How often we want the visible and important positions in the church before we have demonstrated personal faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. After I graduated from seminary with a master's degree in theology, I accepted a position teaching at a small Bible college in Maine. My first day on the job, the dean gave me the responsibility to paint the women's bathroom. Pink, no less. Now that is what I spent all that money, time, and effort to learn to do, right? Four years of hard work qualified me to paint the women's bathroom. Well, friends, if God gives us the job of painting the women's bathroom, then do it faithfully, and he will give you greater responsibility in due time. But if we flunk out on painting the bathroom and do a poor job of it because we think it is beneath us, it is somehow an unimportant task for our great abilities, then we should not expect God to give us greater responsibilities. If God can't count on us to be faithful in the little things, then why should he count on us for any of the big things? Whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God and he will give us greater responsibility because of our obedience and our faithfulness to him. Obedience and faithfulness are the two conditions for profitability in God's kingdom work. Now let's look at the three results of profitability. A profitable position, a profitable service, and three, a profitable fellowship. The first result of profitability is a profitable position. God says, then you will also govern my house. This refers to a position of authority in the temple, God's house in those days. The temple was the place of worship for Israel. God was telling them that they should not expect to lead in worship and govern the decisions about public worship without first demonstrating personal obedience and faithfulness to God. The second result is a profitable service. And you will also have charge in my courts, God says. This refers to a position of authority in the temple courts where decisions about the temple ministry were made. God is telling them that the authority to decide disputes 
The authority to handle the money comes only after they are obedient and faithful in their personal lives. And the third result of profitability, a profitable fellowship. I like the way the New American Standard translates this verse. It reads, I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. The ones who are standing here, that phrase, must refer to the heavenly beings in the heavenly courtroom. Israel will have free access to God in communion and fellowship when she is obedient and faithful in her actions and attitudes. Jesus said in John fifteen fourteen, You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. Obedience opens the door to friendship with Christ, to intimacy with him. The author of Hebrews wrote, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 All of the wonders of intimacy with God are conditioned upon Jesus Christ, our High Priest, cleansing us of our sin and our faithfulness in following Him. We cannot expect the joy of fellowship, the wonder of intimacy, of friendship with God, without the responsibility of faithfulness to God. The point God makes is simple. We are plucked from the fire for profit, but we cannot be profitable in his service until we are obedient to his commands. The biblical principle is clear. You should not lead until you live. You should not lead until you live. We must not expect the visible positions of authority before we have demonstrated our personal faithfulness to authority. This goes for Israel, and it goes for the church as well. You should not lead God's people positionally until you live among God's people faithfully. When I graduated from Bible college in 1976, seems like a very long time ago now, I thought the church would welcome my expertise with open arms. They didn't, and I was frustrated. I had informationitis. I thought that because I had the theological information, the education to lead, I was qualified to lead. I remember telling my wife frequently, can't they see that I know what I'm doing and they ought to trust me to lead them? I have all this knowledge which is going to waste because nobody respects my expertise. You see, I had not learned the principle of faithfulness. I thought information was enough. I had all this information, but I needed to learn obedience. There's a verse in Hebrews that honestly I still have a hard time fully understanding. It is Hebrews 5 verse 8. 
where the author writes of Jesus Christ, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience. There's the phrase. Yet he learned obedience. How does the Son of God learn obedience? I do not think I can fully comprehend that expression. But I do know this. If Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn obedience, then surely I must learn obedience too. Churches have a tendency to do it backwards. We give people leadership roles, hoping they will stay. Instead, we ought to wait for people to demonstrate their faithfulness before we give them leadership responsibilities. If we cannot function under the authority structure of the church, then we are not fit for leadership in the church. We must learn to walk and live before we can lead and decide. The third principle of plucking is that believers are people plucked for promise, verses 8 through 10. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before you, Joshua. And on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. God gives us an explanation of the vision with some additional promises. Joshua and the others sitting with him were symbols of things to come. Unfortunately, the King James Version makes this very confusing by translating it, they are men to be wondered at. The NIV has, the the New International Version has the best translation, I think, of the Hebrew here, when it reads, who are men symbolic of things to come. This vision is a symbol of the future for the nation of Israel. God gives three promises to the nation of Israel in these verses. He gives the promise of a person in verse 8. God promises to bring his servant the branch. These are both messianic titles, servant and branch. The servant is a messianic title from the servant prophecies in Isaiah. We are most familiar with the suffering servant prophecy in Isaiah 53. The branch is a title we are not as familiar with. However, it is a very important title of the Messiah in the Old Testament. The prophet wrote in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, So he's a descendant of David. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, 
and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The branch is clearly the Messiah, in whom all the promises of Israel will be fulfilled. What will Messiah do in that day, according to Zechariah? That question leads us to the second promise. God gives the promise of protection in verse 9. The stone with the seven eyes has been interpreted in various ways. Some have taken it as referring to Israel as a precious, many-faceted gem. Others have understood the stone to refer to Christ. The eyes are faces on the gemstone like a diamond with all of its facets. However, I think it is probably better understood as the symbol of Christ's watchfulness and of his care for his people. The eyes would symbolize his ability of intelligence and omniscience. He knows our needs. He can protect us in any circumstance. This is how the word is used in Zechariah 4, verse 10, where the lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Jesus reminds us in his great commission, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is always with us. Jesus promises us eternal life. And in John 10.28, he goes on to say, No one will pluck us out of his hand. No one will pluck us out of his hand, for he has plucked us out of the fire. I think God gives us a promise of protection and security in Christ in this verse. The third promise is the promise of prosperity in the second half of 9 and verse 10. The branch who is coming to save his people and who watches and protects his people is the branch who brings prosperity to his people. Now God's prosperity is first a spiritual prosperity because Christ will remove the sin of the land of Israel in one day. There must be a spiritual cleansing before there can be any material prosperity for the nation of Israel. The promises of God are never experienced without a removal of sin first. There is coming a day when God will remove the sins of the entire nation of Israel through the cleansing work of the branch. And I think this is the message engraved on the stone in Zechariah's vision. It is also the message that the Apostle Paul reinforces in Romans 11:25 and 26. Paul tells us that after the partial hardening of Israel to make way for the times of the Gentiles, then Paul says, all Israel will be saved when the Deliverer comes from Zion. Paul tells us that this Deliverer will remove ungodliness, and he will take away their sins. After the Messiah cleanses the nation, then they can enjoy the prosperity of the kingdom promises. 
The expression about sitting under the vine and fig tree emphasizes peace and prosperity. The expression, sitting under his vine and fig tree, that expression is used three times in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 4.25, Micah 4.4, and here in Zechariah 3.10. It was a favorite phrase used by George Washington, the first president of the United States, who cited it almost 50 times in his correspondence. Washington wrote a letter to a Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, in which he said, May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Our first president, George Washington, quoted the Hebrew scriptures to a Hebrew congregation to stress that they would live in the United States of America in peace and prosperity. The prophecy is a great picture of earthly peace for the children of Israel. But God has in mind a time in the future when they will experience this peace and prosperity in ways they have never enjoyed in any country at any time on this earth. In the Millennial Kingdom, Christ will restore Israel to her rightful place of prosperity and blessing. Israel's future depends on the cleansing work of the Messiah. Israel has no future apart from Jesus Christ, and friends, neither do we. Our future blessing in heaven is dependent upon the work of Christ on the cross, cleansing us from sin, making us fit for his kingdom. He plucks us from the fire to be his in his kingdom. Our purification from sin, our profit to God, and our promise of future prosperity are all of God's grace and none of our abilities. We cannot earn his favor. We cannot earn that favor any more than Israel could please God. We can't please God either by ourselves. We must accept God's grace for our sins. There is no other way out of the fire. Have you trusted Christ for your salvation today? If not, do it now before it is too late. He will pluck you from the fire too. If you have, then praise God today for his amazing grace. Worship him for what he has done for you. We are all every single one of us, simply people who have been plucked from the fire.